had a crazy morning this morning. We were so proud of ourselves. We've been, uh, this morning we had all these different things in service, so, you know, we've been uh, planning and had everything prepared, and then it was about 30 minutes to 40 minutes before service, and all of a sudden someone goes, hey, so um, how's the baptistry? And we go, oh, you need water to baptize people. <laughs> That's right. And then right after that, my wife says, oh, we forgot part of the outfit for Rachel. Can you go get it? And then while I'm driving, I go, oh, no, I'm supposed to be on the stage in five minutes. <laughs> so it's been a really fun day. So Merry Christmas to all of you, right? <laughs> Goodness gracious. It's been a blast. All right. So we're talking Christmas this morning. And uh, in the passage there in Matthew, what stands out to me the most um, when it comes to the story of his birth, is how people respond to it. What's interesting is that uh, all the various characters, from the account of Matthew to Luke, the accounts are slightly different. And what's interesting is that they each involve some different characters. And each character hears about the Messiah and responds in a very different way. And the main character I want to talk about this morning is Herod. Okay, If you guys saw in the text there, you know, he finds out, he hears about these, these wise men from the east who, who have traveled following the star, and he's curious about it. So he asks about it, he, he inquires, he finds out that they are here because in some way, shape, or form, they have been notified that a new king of the Jews has been born. Now, this is very important to Herod for a very important reason, because uh, there in verse, which verse was it? They said, um, in verse 2, Where's the one who has been uh, born king of the Jews? That term means a lot to Herod. Because the Romans have given Herod a title. Would anyone like to guess what his title is? King of the Jews. Okay? And, and Herod's family line is the one who has built uh, the temple back. And so his family is supposed to have the right to reign in Israel. So when he hears about the Messiah, he's not just hearing about a baby or about this, you know, amazing thing. He hears one thing. When Herod sees the manger, he is threatened because he sees a what? A king. Specifically, a king who is set on taking his throne. So what's the response of Herod? He responds by bringing gifts and he worships and celebrates with a tambourine. Once he finds out that the Magi have actually not returned to him, because the Magi, after they you know, uh, came to Christ, they have a dream, the Spirit of God speaks to them in a dream, and they sneak out of the country. Once he learns of this, he does not know where this threat is. And so he only has one way to respond. And so in, in order to protect his throne, he sends out soldiers to kill all the males who were born in this time frame. All the males. That's an interesting reaction, is it not? When you think about uh, Jesus in the manger, is your response to pull out a sword? We also see some other characters here. In the account of Luke, what's interesting between Luke and Matthew is that Matthew has these wise men from the east who are the ones that come up upon the birth of Jesus. But in Luke, the ones who are told about the birth of the Messiah are not wise men. They're actually shepherds. Have you guys heard of this in the story? Um, 
What about Charlie Brown Christmas? How about that? Have you, yes, okay, you've heard that. And, you know, it talks about the shepherds in the field, right? And throughout in the field, these angels show up, and they begin to proclaim to them what's going to happen. Now, what's very interesting about um, in Luke's account is that when the angels show up to the shepherds, what they tell them is that there has been a ruler has been born from the city of David. Now, what was David prior to being a king? Shepherd. Oh, interesting, isn't it? Now, something else that you should know about shepherds. Shepherds were not exactly seen as noble at this time in history. Because with shepherds, what happened was shepherds were always working at night. And what happens to, to people who are awake at night, well, let's just say this. Would you say that your best choices in life were made at night? Fair enough, right? Shepherds were actually known as thieves. People who in night would come by your land as they have their, their flock, and they would sneak into pastures and they would steal things. They weren't exactly favorites. They were not rich, okay? They were not extremely educated. And so when the angels come to the shepherds, the response of the shepherds is with great amazement, it says. And the amazement is not just of what they've been told. The amazement is also that what they have been told. How often is it that, you know, when there is something to do with power, say if, uh, what's his name? Vladimir Putin from Russia. Okay? If he is going to, to fly in into the country today, do you think that they're going to send a messenger to let you know about it. We just wanted you to know, Putin's coming in tomorrow morning. Why not? Because we are not very important. Right? I mean, come on. I mean, you matter a lot to me, okay? But uh, in that world, not very important. And so what happens here is that, you know, we see these different characters who are, who are seeing, if you would, what's in the manger. One of the other characters I see, which kind of speaks out to me the most, is Mary. What's interesting about Mary uh, in the account of Luke in chapter 2, at the bottom, you know, she's here, uh, she's already had the angels come to her when she conceived of Jesus, and now that he's born, she has all these amazing things happening around her. Her brother-in-law, uh, he, he was mute the entire time that she was pregnant, and all of a sudden now he can speak, and, and then now there's angels who are speaking to other people, and, and now there's shepherds who are coming with this message from angels, and it says there in chapter 2 that it, it says that she, she pondered all these things in her heart. There's people who are celebrating, there's people who are prophesying around her, and yet she is just kind of taking it all in, because when she sees what's in the manger. She doesn't just see a Messiah. She doesn't just see uh, a God even. She also sees a son. What's interesting in the Gospel of Matthew is that what Matthew sees, he starts his entire account of the Gospel and of Jesus by trying to tie it all the way back to lineage. He's the one who traces it all the way back to David and all the way back beyond David. And he's the one who wants everyone to see that what's in the manger is the Messiah. He is the one who's going to do everything that's been promised for hundreds and thousands of years. Now, it's different in Luke. In Luke's gospel, he starts in a very different way. He does not start by trying to explain that he's the Messiah. Luke starts by saying one thing. He says, 
And in the year of, and he, he refers to the Roman Empire. And the way he starts his account of the birth of Jesus is by talking about the Roman Empire and that these people were in control. And Matthew calls Jesus the Messiah, but Luke calls him in the birth of our Lord. That's very important. Because to Luke, he's not just seeing this, this promised Savior for the Jews. He's now seeing a king who's not just going to threaten Herod. He sees a king who's going to threaten, at that time, the king of kings. Who was who? Caesar. And so his entire account starts with one place. He starts with Rome. And John is even different. The Gospel of John. John skips over the birth story. He goes all the way back to Genesis. And he starts his birth story by saying, and the Word became flesh. Because to him, it's not about the nativity scene. It's not about who's king, who's about Herod or Caesar. This is cosmic. This is bigger than the cosmos. The one who is before all of creation has now stepped into creation. The one who is before time is stepping into time. To John, who cares about Caesar, who cares about Herod, they are just you know, small pawns in this game. What I want you to see is that to each person, what they found in the manger, the way they react, the manger, it, it challenges us. What's crazy is, is, you know, this morning even, the way what you see, if you would, in the manger, if you could step into the story, what you see in that manger speaks volumes. It speaks volumes for how you understand God, for what you expect from God. And uh, I think what's troubling for most of us is that if we're being honest, if we were to examine our actions, the shepherds respond with joy and celebration. They leave their flock and they run to go find this king. They basically leave all of their well-being. They abandon it and they run to go find just so they can see this person, this Savior. The Magi, the wise men, travel hundreds of miles just so they can bring gifts and worship. Because what they see pulls this out of them. What they understand to be in the manger is worthy of worship, of gifts, of sacrifice. Herod, what he sees in the manger is worthy of war. It's worthy of bloodshed. It's worthy of murdering hundreds and thousands of children. Because what he sees in that manger is so dangerous to him. And in history, what we'll find out is what the Roman Empire saw inside the manger was so dangerous to them that they had to steal the story. They had to steal the story and find a way to, to make it part of their own power because they knew that what was inside that manger was so threatening that it could bring down the greatest power on the entire earth. They're terrified of it. So the question for us this morning is very simple. What do we see inside the manger? Now the answer to that is only found in one place. The answer to what we see in the manger is found in how we react 
to it. Would you guys think it's safe to say that, that the way that we act towards anything is what truly reveals how we think and feel about it? Yes, no. You guys are like, this is way too late for Christmas. We're supposed to read the story and clap. <laughs> if, you, if you guys have been coming here long enough to know, we're not doing that. Maybe next Sunday on Christmas, okay. But. What we see in the manger, it shows us, okay. Like, uh, for example, if you did not have a child who was up here on the stage, okay, singing that song, it probably wasn't a very special moment for you. Come on, be honest. It probably was not the best singing which you've ever heard. It wasn't the best dancing, okay? It wasn't the most orderly thing you've ever seen. You weren't very impressed, right? But if you saw your flesh and blood, if you would, your own child up here, all of a sudden, I mean, it was like the Academy Awards. I mean, it was amazing. You're like, my son gave the best this, you know, whatever that means, right? Good job, boy, you nailed it. <laughs> you know? Merry Christmas. Oh, my goodness. What you see, the way that you connect to it, okay? I mean, what we find in the manger, it shows us exactly how we see God. I mean, it sounds dramatic, if you will, but the way that I kind of see it in my mind is, you know, here's the manger, I'm walking up on it. And when I get up to it, I see that, that plastic baby Jesus. White as could be, a blonde with blue eyes. <laughs> Jesus is German. He's Aryan. <laughs> Come on. That's funny. Come on. That's funny. <laughs> I see this plastic baby Jesus, and I feel like that's the way most of us treat Christmas. And I know that that's kind of a dramatic statement. Yes, Devin, okay, come on. It's a cultural thing. You know, you know, our kids expect presents. It's just that, okay? Yes and no, right? This is one thing that we get at almost every Sunday here at Grace. How do we really treat God? What value do we really see in Him? How real is this baby who's in this manger? And again, I think the way most of us treat God the way that most of us react to Jesus, He really is just plastic. It's not really real to us. But the challenge in this is, is simple. If, if we could see what's in the manger the way that these other people saw it, if it could be that real to us, it would show up everywhere in the way that we were the way that we act, the way we treat it, the way we think about it. Uh, this morning I walked in into worship, you know, and of course I had to run home and get the outfit, and you know, I walk in and I'm not really engaged in worship. I'm just sitting here thinking, man, what in the world is wrong with me? You know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's our Christmas celebration, and the most I can get is a, hey man, it's Christmas, you know, I mean, what in the world is that, right? crazy. And so for most of us, you know, I, I think the manger is supposed to be a challenge. The value which we find in having these holy days, these, these sacred moments in our calendar, these events where we 
we take a moment and we stop and we force ourselves to reevaluate. The, uh, the church calendar is basically divided you know, into halves, if you would. And on the one half, is kind of just your, your normal days, if you would. And then the second half of the calendar, which starts with Advent, is supposed to start taking us back into the stories, into the birth of Jesus, into His life, into His crucifixion, into the resurrection, into the falling of the Holy Spirit, into the birth of the church. And we're supposed to go back into these stories, and it's supposed to stop being fake. And we're supposed to take that six months, if you would, and allow the stories to stop just being stories for us. We're supposed to have candles and bread and juice and water. And we're supposed to have these experiences which remind us that these things are not just fairy tales. Who cares what day Jesus was actually born on? What matters is setting aside a day to remember it. Most scholars actually believe that uh, December 25th was actually picked primarily because it was nine months from the day that they knew which he was crucified. March 25th. They wanted to be able to have the calendar and to have it set up in a way to where it would build and we would just think and focus and think on Jesus. It would just saturate our year. And so, if you can, if you can almost allow yourself to kind of step back uh, in the story, if you would, with Jesus. The first thing that happens with us in the manger is it, it comes to us in such a way that it meets us. In the manger, the first way that God challenges us, the first thing that we learn about God at the manger is that at the manger, God meets us. We call this the incarnation, right? And what's, what's so hard about this is, is even hearing these words, you know, I say these words, I say, you know, incarnation, He meets us, and it just goes, it just bounces right off of us. Bounces off our minds, bounces off, off our hearts. We're so hard, we're so locked in, we're so just numb to everything that's actually real. Um, have you guys ever had those moments with your kids or with family or friends? Just, just, just a moment where all of a sudden, in that moment, everything that really mattered just kind of clicked for you. You ever had that? Maybe the first time you held your child in the hospital room and it just hits you. This matters, right? Not the bill or the job or the vacation or the football team or any of that garbage, right? This matters. And... Christmas and Advent, you know, it's supposed to be a time for us to remember, to be centered, if you would. This matters. And for me, the moments I've had where, you know, things click for me. And, and again, what's, what's sad about this is, is that these moments are rare. They happen every once in a while, and it affects you for a while, but then somehow it just kind of falls away. But in these moments, there is flesh and blood, if you would. For me, the moments that have always made life click to where I've actually been able to understand it and to feel it, the gravity of it. This is what matters. This is why I exist. This is what I breathe for. It's for these moments. It's always been with people. 
One of the best things about having kids is it's, it's such an amazing like, reminder of this. These moments you have with children. It's, it happens, you know, in the hospital. It happens sometimes when they're being really cute and amazing. It happens sometimes when they're singing songs. And most of the time it happens when there's poop involved or there's screaming involved or, or there's cuss words involved, right? Come on, be honest. All you guys, you can get prayer after service for that, okay? And it's always been kind of a weird thing to me that it kind of hits me, okay? That, that, that the moment that God would choose to send this message to start this, this transformation of the entire world, He chose to do it in this form. A baby. An infant. I mean, to think that God would take a form where He would need to have His diapers changed. Obviously, we know that they didn't have, you know, Pampers and Huggies back there, but you know what I mean. That was funny too. <laughs> you guys, I mean, to think that God would take a form that He would need someone to feed Him. Think about that. He would take a form that is reliant. He, he can't do a thing for Himself. I'm not sure what image you have in the manger, okay, but when I see it, I'm confused by it. At the same time that I'm impacted, and it hits me hard, I'm also a little bit confused by this. Because what is in this manger, okay, is the Messiah. That's loaded. It is God, okay, which that's even loaded too. It is the King of the entire universe. It is the one who will humble and bring low all powers and all forces in all the universe. He is the one ruler who will rule for eternity, he needs to be fed. He needs to be changed. He needs to be hugged, swaddled. He can be cold or hot, tired. You wonder if he was cranky at all, right? <laughs> or was he just like this perfect baby just glowed and, you know, his diaper changed itself and just kind of floated off into the trash can? <laughs> You're like, I mean... <laughs> I highly doubt this, okay? We don't have any record of this, okay? But I don't know. But the first challenge that we find in the manger is that we find a God who meets us exactly where we are. There's something so profound and powerful about the two most significant moments in the Scriptures. The birth of Jesus and, of course, His crucifixion and resurrection. The fact that He would be born in such a way that He encompasses all the power in all the world. All the understanding in all the world. He comes from outside of time. He comes from outside of matter even. And He steps into it. And yet, when He's crucified, He is taking His throne. He is defeating all of power and death. But He's doing it by allowing people to spit on Him. And, to... and then even in the resurrection, He doesn't leave the body behind. The ultimate power of victory, the ultimate hope for humans, that there's life beyond the grave, and he does it in this, this thing, this body, which aches and hurts and gets bruised and, you know, stinks. Come on, think about this thing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Come on. Fine, you guys have great bodies. <laughs> it's ridiculous. 
But at the manger, this is the ultimate image. It, it's the image that speaks a thousand words. And it tells us in one image that this God is with us in all things. Even the Savior of the world, God Himself is going to be present in pain and hunger and you know, suffering, loneliness, depression, darkness, hopelessness. He's going to be misunderstood, mistreated, spoken bad up. He's going to go through all these things. And the first challenge that we find here in the manger is we find a God who is with us. We find Emmanuel. God with us. And the question, the challenge that, that the manger it's will we allow God to be with us? Are we aware that God is with us? And often, the times that God is with us the most are the times when we honestly sometimes don't even want Him to be around the most. Times of pain and loss and questions, misunderstanding, frustrations, disappointment, hopelessness, just anger at God. Why would you do this? Why would you do these things? How come you haven't done these things you said you would do? And the first challenge for us in the manger is this. Are we going to accept that we have a God who is with us? Are we going to allow Him to be present with us. Second thing that happens in the manger is this. In the manger, God, He offers to us, if you would. He, 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 comes, with, he comes bearing presence. What happens in the manger is that when we look in the manger, the question for us all is this. What are we asking of this God? Here's a different way to put it. If I had, if I was about to lose my house tomorrow, and I was sitting down with someone who had tons of money, and I knew that they had the ability to fix my situation, what I would ask of this person is to change my situation. Because I understand that they have the ability. I understand this person has all of the resources needed. It wouldn't even be a drop in the bucket for this person, right? I understand this. And because I understand this person to have what I need, now I'm going to ask it from them. Now, flip it around. If I'm sitting with my child and I'm about to lose my house, I'm not going to ask or expect anything from that child. Why? Because I understand this child has no ability to change my situation. The question for you this morning is, what do you ask of the baby in the manger? What do you see there? When you look at, at what's in the manger, it reveals how you understand it. Is this just a story? Am I asking nothing of this baby, of this Messiah, of this King? Am I asking nothing of them? And if I'm asking nothing of God, it's because I expect nothing from God. If I'm willing to murder this child as Herod would, it means because I'm expecting things that I don't want from this child. If I'm willing to bring gifts and to take time and to worship, you know, to protect, to invest, whatever, it means there's something in this child I believe 
can change my situation. Most of you, the only thing which you've asked of, of the baby in the manger is, well, if hell really is real, then when I die, I'm going to ask you to not have me go there. That's the extent of what you actually try to ask of this baby. And what's so amazing in the Scriptures is that hardly anyone's even concerned about this in the Bible. Everyone in the Bible is reacting in the moment, in a real way, because they believe this baby has the potential and will make change in the moment. And so they, they respond that way. This needs to challenge you. Because what you invest, what you bring, if you, if you would, the worship, the gifts, what you bring to God shows what you are asking from Him. This morning I walk in and it just shocks me, you know, in my own heart. You know, what am I bringing this morning? We're not just concerned about worship songs or anything like that. But what am I bringing? I mean, how much of my life, of my, uh, of my strength, of my time, of my choices, what am I bringing to Him? And again, it shows me what am I asking of Him? And if I'm not asking it of Him, it's because I don't believe He has much to offer me. And the problem is this. Your Jesus is still plastic. That's the problem for most of us. The baby in the manger for most of us is still this plastic, blonde, blue-eyed, $5 thing from Walmart. It's cute. It's nice. It's worth a couple hours a month, maybe. That's about it. And maybe, maybe if this thing actually pans out, if when I die, well then, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. And so that, that question that the manger is asking you also is, again, what are you asking? What are you asking for of this God, of this baby, of this Messiah, of this you know, creator of all the universe who has come to your doorstep? What are you asking for? Here's the third thing that challenges us in the manger. He straight up challenges us. That's it. In the manger, God challenges us in this way. Because God and, and even Christ Himself makes no mistakes about it. When the angels come, when they're speaking to the Magi, when they're speaking to the shepherds, when they're speaking to Mary, they're saying the same thing. This child is king. If you read between the lines, with... Uh, Last Sunday, we went to the song of Mary and Zechariah and so forth. When you read between the lines, this king who's coming, he challenges everyone because here's the issue. His kingdom and his reign are on the move. And from that moment in history, it is spreading. It is expanding. What we understand in the Gospel of John is this. This reign of Jesus will encompass all of creation and beyond. It will encompass all planets and matter and time and space. And when this kingdom reaches you, it challenges you to one question. Will He be your King or not? And again, I mean... I know that I get morbid and I apologize so bad. But this, I mean, 
You're here because in some way, shape, or form, you believe Jesus has something to do with your eternal life. Or He doesn't. In some way, He might be involved with what happens to you, not in the next 20 years, 15 years, 50 years, what happens to you in the next 100, 500, 10,000, 10 million years. That's why you're here. It's kind of high stakes. Just a little bit. And it all comes down to the one question. And again, the, this question, it can only bring three responses. Dallas Willard teaches on this sometimes in his books, and the way he puts it is this. The gospel is a story about a kingdom and how it's involved in many kingdoms. And what he means is this. The gospel is a story about how you... Have your own kingdom. You are the king of your own life. You choose what comes in, what goes out. You choose where you invest your thoughts, your strength, your emotions, your hope. You choose the people you let in, the things you let in. You choose, you control the gates of your life. You are the king of your kingdom. And the gospel is a story about how you as king are going to respond to another king in his kingdom. And a king who is threatened with, a, with an invasion of another kingdom only has two options. To yield, to submit. Apostle Paul would say, to confess Jesus Christ as what? Lord. To allow His kingdom to swallow up your kingdom. Or you have a second option. Fight. Resist that kingdom, resist that king, resist that king's will, resist that king's forces, resist that king's way, you have the option to either to bow down or to pull out your sword. And what you need to know this morning is this. The reaction of Herod is a much more sane reaction to Jesus than most of us. His reaction to kill babies makes no sense to most of you. But what you need to understand is his reaction is more sane and logical than most of us. While you have those two reactions, there's a third one that most of us choose. Indifference. We just... Now, there's only one way for us to justify indifference. Ignorance. The only way that we could possibly see the God of all the world coming and saying, you're either with me or you're not. You either get to enjoy everything I bring or you choose to be outside of my kingdom. The only way for us to justify and explain away indifference is we're ignorant, we're stupid. We don't understand what He's doing. Because there are only two sane reactions to the Gospel. We bow down and we submit or we fight. The problem is, most of us try to do both. The challenge of the manger goes straight to your heart. What do you see there? And what you should realize is that what this baby is bringing is two things. He's bringing the cross. He's bringing the resurrection. He is bringing a call for you in this life to submit, to lay down your sword, to give over all control of your life. That's what baptism means, my friends. You can choose to go under 
for the rest of your sane life on this earth in this present time, whether you have 50 years, 100 years, you choose to go under. To, to give it away, no matter what it means, I give this life to you. And I'm doing it with one hope. Because I believe that this, this baby, this Messiah, this King, this God who created everything, if I give Him this life, if I submit, then what I get is what lies beyond. That whenever He chooses to finally set up His kingdom, a kingdom that will stand forever, when He, when he makes everything right that is wrong, when He throws away rape and murder and death and cancer and when He throws these things out and He creates this new world, if I enter into the, to its gates, I enter into the only gate which exists, and it's called a cross. But if I do this, I do it in hope that on the other side I get to taste what I saw in the resurrection. That this baby is not only one who's going to call me to die, He's going to call me to really live. To know what life really is. And then to get to experience it and enjoy it without end ever. And that is a foreign thing to us, friend. We don't know what anything is like that doesn't have an end to it. So this morning, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> yeah, it's probably one of the most cheery Christmas messages, but I think it's an amazing message, honestly. This is an amazing message. I mean, like, what's in the manger is not this. Here's where we are this morning. How will you respond? There are only two logical reactions. Because here's the thing, that third reaction, being ignorant, is not a choice for you any longer. Because I've already explained it. It's unless you're sleeping, okay? We only have two reactions to, the, to, to this baby in the manger. We either choose to see that in this child is a king and God and the, the restorer of all things. And that He's waiting until the right time to restore His kingdom. And that what that means is that to receive it, I might have to suffer for a while. I might have to... But I've only got two, two choices. I either choose to submit and to receive this king and this kingdom, or I choose to pull out my sword and resist it.